Although church, if you would open to John 20, John chapter 20, we're going to continue on where Pastor Kent left off last week. John chapter 20 will be in verse 24 through 29. This is God's word. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and the place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. And so, Lord, we know that if there are any here, and there are, who have believed, we have believed without seeing. We have believed without seeing. And You call us blessed. And so, Father, we pray that You would deepen that faith today in the resurrected Christ, that we would believe off the eyewitness testimonies, off the Word of God. And Lord, that we would not need to put our hands in the wounds to believe. We would not need to see You standing before us resurrected to believe. We pray You grant faith and strengthen the faith that You've given. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if someone were to ask you, Uh, What are some of the essential beliefs of Christianity? I wonder what you would say. Um, There are really kind of two approaches that many Christians, or two extremes maybe we could say, that Christians would say regarding this. Some would would say, well, really uh, everything in the Bible is essential. Every hill is worth dying on. And they would see no secondary uh, issues and they would not back down from any fight uh, for orthodoxy or fellowship. And then there's others on the other side of that who would not really see any doctrine worth fighting for, any hill worth dying on. Uh, They would say, doctrine divides, and I just want to love, and pastors and and seminary students can fight doctrinal things, but all, all that really matters is love. And I just want to come back to the question that if Christianity is a religion based off faith in certain truths and facts, then every fact and truth isn't a hill worth dying on, but certainly some are. And if that's true, what are some of those central truths to Christianity? I wonder how you would answer that. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this uh, related to something I've been studying this last year a lot. I've been studying a lot about the history of liberalism in, in the U.S. and in the, the church in the U.S. in particular uh, over the last 150 years or so. 
this, this is where all the debates about the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture uh, were, were central. Uh, debates about hell and eternal judgment and heaven and um, even many denying the bodily resurrection of Christ. And, um, you know, it just puts in you this thankfulness for men like Charles Spurgeon, who probably went to the grave early, uh, ending his life fighting many of these battles. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is uh, painted there in our foyer, um, fought these battles well. Uh, many of the old, we'd call them the old Princeton professors, uh, Cornelius Van Til, B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, John Murray, J. Uh, Gresham Machen, uh, were men who fought uh, these battles well. Uh, Machen actually at the funeral of B.B. Warfield said, today Princeton died. And, um, and that old Princeton really probably did die with B.B. Warfield. But what many of these men did was they let Princeton die, and then they started seven other seminaries and colleges in that old Princeton tradition, I got, I've had the privilege of uh, studying at two of those, Reformed Theological Seminary and Covenant Theological Seminary. Um, and, and it's just sobering to think about all the battles that Christians have fought to preserve these essential doctrines of the faith. Uh, J. Gresham Machen said, we're not dealing, when we talk about liberal Christianity and Christianity, we're not dealing with uh, Christianity. We're dealing with two separate religions. We're dealing with liberal Christianity and Christianity, and they're two separate religions. And, and I think he's right about that. And, and what liberal Christianity, one of the main targets that they have is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and denying it. And, it, and, and we cannot compromise there. And when we ignore or disbelieve the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have lost Christianity. What did Paul say? If Christ has not risen, our sins are not forgiven. And we are misrepresenting God. And so we must all, like Thomas, uh, leave doubts about the resurrection and we must come into a strong, firm confidence in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Um, I think the whole Gospel of John is really aiming us toward this John twenty. Uh, Verse 31 says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life that is resurrected eternal life in His name. Um, And so here's what I want to do today. I want to put uh, two things before us from this passage. The first would be the nature of doubt. I want to look at how John unpacks this idea of doubt uh, in his whole gospel leading up to Thomas. And then from there, I want to put three things before us that I often, if somebody comes to me with doubts about Christianity, especially fundamental doubts, like should we trust the Bible or did Jesus really die on the cross and raised from the dead? Uh, is, is hell an eternal place? Um, these type doubts. I'll put three things before us. I see those three things in this passage. So we'll get, we'll get to that uh, at the end. But let's start with the nature of doubt. And it's different forms. And I really shouldn't have to say what I'm about to say, but I think in a, a postmodern pluralistic age, this is worth saying. Doubt is not good. In a uh, religion, which Christianity is, uh, that is a faith religion. 
a religion based on faith. Doubt is not good. That is not a virtue, uh, to be one who doubts. Um, And we're not talking about a type of blind faith. We're talking about a faith in certain facts and truths uh, that make up what Christianity is. And so many, when when doubts arise in their hearts and their minds, they get ashamed of those doubts. And that's probably because they fear that uh, or have been in churches that were harsh with those who doubted, that that judged uh, really strongly, which is really tragic. uh, Because Jude 22 and 23 says this, be merciful with those who doubt. Be merciful with those who doubt. And I think Jude said that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also in his mind because he saw how merciful Jesus was with those who doubted. He had watched it. We think about Jesus with Nicodemus. He stayed up late into the night dealing with Nicodemus who was doubting, who was questioning things, who had all these questions, and he pressed the gospel and the truth of God into Nicodemus's soul. Nathaniel had doubts and questions like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To which uh, he was told, come and see. Uh, I think there's a category we could say of what we might call pagan doubters. I don't think Jesus interacted with a lot of what we would call pagan doubters because he was mainly in Jewish areas, uh, more conservative areas. And, uh, but Paul certainly spent a lot of time in these type places like Corinth and Rome. And, and he said uh, that there are many who reject truth because they want to live in immorality. And their doubts are convenient for the sake of their lifestyle. And, uh, and we know even Psalm 2 says the nations rage against this Christ that's been uh, enthroned on Zion. And, and people say, let's burst their bonds from us, cast their cords. That is the, the system of morality from this Messiah. Let's cast it from us. And then it says, he who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. Meaning, He holds them in confusion. God does. Keep some people in confusion and doubt because they refuse to worship Christ. There's a category for that in Scripture. We, we, we could also look at what I would call religious doubters. Um, Pharisees, in other words, we could call them who doubted and disbelieved because uh, Jesus said their will is evil. The will is evil. John 7, 17 says, Jesus said it like this. He said, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know if the teaching is from God. There will be no place for, for ongoing, persistent doubt if his will is to do God's will. So I think the reality is that many people uh, do not believe because they will not believe. Many doubt because they do not want the truth. That is many people. There are others who would say, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but, but help my unbelief And maybe we could put it like this. For them, Christ has won their heart. He is enthroned as the Lord of their life, ruling from the heart. That that reality is true of them. 
But at the same time, because the old man is still alive, these little pockets of unbelief uh, in the heart arise. And, and they raise themselves. And there's little doubters, these little voices or pockets of doubt, and they must be conquered so that all of our heart can be given in allegiance to Christ. And that is the reality for the believer. And um, I think one thing that's important to remember when we're looking at Jesus and His ministry, you think Jesus is doing ministry for only three years on this earth. Um, and He is not ministering, that I can remember, even wants to a mature Christian. He's, he's either ministering to those who are not believers or those who are very immature new believers. Uh, he's, he's not ministering to these who even had a great confidence. I mean, it, even if post-resurrection, these disciples are still doubting fundamental doctrines of the faith. I mean, things that they should have had strong convictions on that they still aren't seeing clearly. Um, the, these doubts persist. And there's pockets of doubt in their hearts, lingering fears, sinful anxieties, big questions. And then Christ's posture toward his disciples is always extreme patience, shocking amount of patience, actually. He's not plowing forward going, I've, I've put nothing but truth before you for three years and you're going to ask that you've crossed the line. I mean, that's just not how he's speaking to his people uh, when doubts arise. He doesn't seem to be scared by their doubts. Um, but he begins to give them proof. Uh, case in point, Thomas. Let's look at him for a moment. Doubting Thomas is what we call him many times, right? It's not actually what the Bible calls him, um, but it's been uh, a nickname of his given throughout history. Think about Thomas for a minute. What, what has Thomas seen in, in, this, uh, in this last few weeks? He watched Jesus die on a cross, uh, nail pierced hands, feet to the cross, blood everywhere. He watched that. He watched Jesus' lifeless body be taken down from the cross and put into a tomb. And then he was not there the first Lord's Day service. He wasn't there the first time Jesus appeared with the others in that first gathering. He was absent from that. And we don't know why. We don't know why he wasn't there. He may, maybe he was working, maybe he was sick, maybe there was some sort of legitimate reason, or maybe there was a, not a legitimate reason. We don't know, uh, but he was not there. And now everybody's coming to him and saying, Christ is risen, Thomas. We've seen him. And Thomas is, is going, I'm just not one of those people who believe something because I want it to be true. That's not me. I'm a realist. And, he, and he's essentially saying the type of evidence that I would need that Jesus is resurrected is that the same, I would need to know that the same body that went into that tomb is the same body that has come out. I, I don't want a look-alike. I don't want uh, some uh, spiritual experience. I want physical evidence. I need proof that the same body that went into the tomb with the same wounds would be the same body that walks out. And I want to see the wounds. Or I'm not going to believe. Uh, Thomas is a man who wants his faith based on truth. He is the opposite of gullible. Gullibility is the conspiracy theorist. Uh, that the more outlandish the story, the more prone that they are to believe it. Uh, some massive claim arises. 
uh, with little to no evidence, and some people are prone to want to believe that massive claim with little to no evidence. And this is a bipartisan issue, gullibility. You can find it on the left or the right. You see things that, that leftist liberals believe, and you just scratch your head and you wonder, how is that possible? And then you see things that on the right people believe, and you go, how is that possible? They seem so gullible. That's not Thomas. He's not saying, well, if the government said it, it must be true. Or if some conservative commentator said it, it must be true. This man wants evidence. He wants to know that these things are certain. And many Christians aren't like Thomas. They're too gullible. Uh, we can go back to we, so many illustrations we could give for this, but I think back to the 70s and 80s, there was a man named Popoff. He was a traveling evangelist. And he would pack out venues for these faith healings. He, and he had this kind of psychopathic way of speaking to people. He would look at a crowd and he would essentially say, I'm sensing uh, somebody in row B, seat 8, in a blue dress who God wants to heal today. And uh, he, would, he would minister to this person and, and, and supposedly heal them or at least convince them that they were healed. And, um, and ABC, the news station, actually caught wind of this at, at some point and wanted to run a story on it and began to dig and try to figure out what was going on here. And so they began to send out their researchers to these little uh, evangelistic campaigns and, and they couldn't find any dirt on this guy at first, but they kept digging. And... Uh, and at one point they realized Popoff wore a hearing aid. Faith healer wearing a hearing aid. I mean, it was the first kind of interesting thing. I mean, I don't know how a faith healer needs a hearing aid. But they began to be concerned about this as well. So they brought one of these radio scanners that began to scan the crowd and pick up radio frequencies, strong radio frequencies in the audience. And they, they discovered that his wife also had a hearing aid. And that she was one of the greeters. And when people would walk into the building, she would give them a prayer card and say, if we can pray for you in any kind of way, if you're sick, you know, can you uh, write that on here and we'll have a team that will pray for you. And if it was uh, an issue like terminal cancer, I have three months to live, you know, they would kind of push that one aside. But if it was something that was more psychosomatic, Something that, uh, like a, uh, my, my back is hurt for a few months and I, uh, you know, it's, it's really a, a difficult thing for me. She would, she would radio to pop off and say, ah, oh, there's a woman on seat B, row eight, and, and she has a, a blue dress. Please come and, uh, and, and he would say, oh, God is telling me that a woman on this seat in this dress and God wants to heal you today. And these things are very frustrating, I think, for many of us. I think one of the things that frustrates me most about stories like that is that ABC has to be the one that finds it out. And that it isn't Christians that uh, aren't able to discern these things. And it's, it's really a very unfortunate thing that this exists, and, and not even just in America, but all over the world. Uh, gullible people are being played on. and. Um, and people don't want firm confidence in what they believe. Thomas is essentially saying, I'm not like that. This is, this is I need evidence for what I believe. He's a frustrated skeptic who, who took pride in being a man of common sense. 
And just uh, the idea of the resurrection seems too outlandish, too crazy to him without evidence. But the evidence is beginning to pile up. He's going, we really can't find the body. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not in the tomb. And the, and the people who said they've seen him risen, they're really credible eyewitnesses. And if he really did raise, it would confirm all these Old Testament prophecies. And it would confirm many of the things that Jesus himself said, like I would raise on the third day. And so all of this is going through Thomas's mind. And out of frustration, he says in verse 25, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and put my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And at that moment, Jesus appeared with a, a godlike attribute, he heard this demand from Thomas for physical evidence, and Jesus, in his mercy, shows up and gives him the physical evidence he demanded. And said to him, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I, I think there's three very important things to see right here um, for those who are currently, anyone here who's currently doubting, anyone here who wants to be kept from doubting, uh, these three things uh, I give to people uh, regularly, I, I do believe that they're all here in this text. And they're, they're three separate things, but they really all fall into one category in Thomas's life and I believe in ours. Well, let's start with Number one, the Lord's Day gathering. The Lord's Day gathering. It is not accidental, church, that three times highlighted in chapter 20, we have mention of what's going on on a Sunday. Not a Monday, not a Tuesday, not a Friday. Sunday. Three times, look at verse 1. The first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, Jesus joins them for worship. Verse 19, on the evening of the first day of the week, so Sunday night, this is why many people have Sunday night services, uh, Jesus joins them again. Verse 26, our passage, says eight days later, His disciples were inside again. And someone goes, eight days? Well, that must have been on Monday. No, there's other places actually in the Gospel uh, that it talks about eight days as being a timetable or a timestamp on a seven-day period, on a uh, on a week period rather, um, and and so and and even the NIV. If, if anybody here has an NIV, there's other translations that actually say a week later, and that's how the translators translate that phrase. And so we're seeing repetition here, which I think is significant. And all the, every Johanian scholar and every commentator points this out, that there is a repetition that we're seeing, and that is significant. Jesus keeps showing up on Sundays. Listen to D.A. Carson. The chronology is not sacrificed to theology. This emphasis on the Lord's Day reflects particular theological interest of the writer. This is an allusion to the origins of Christian worship on this particular day, Sunday. So what Carson's pointing out is, yes, this is a historical moment. Jesus is historically showing up on these Sundays. But it turns into a theological teaching. 
a doctrine. He shows up on Sunday morning. They're gathered and He shows up on Sunday night. And then the next Sunday they're gathered and He shows up again. Uh, By the way, John is our author, right? Uh, John is also the author of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, John coins the phrase, first day of the week, and calls it the Lord's Day. And so we have the same author uh, making much of the first day of the week of Sunday as a day of worship or as the Lord's Day. Um, We see even in this, uh, our passage, it says the disciples were inside again. Key word, again. And so many of you know, as we, if we uh, were to read on into the book of Acts, we would see the church gathered on Sunday. If we were to read on, we would see Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? Well, that's a Sunday and the Spirit falls on the church. That's a significant moment in the history of the church and it's on a Sunday. As well, you could read into 1 Corinthians, which is uh, 20 years, roughly 20 years later, it's 53, 54 A.D., Uh, when Paul goes to the Corinthian church 20 years after the resurrection and they're still meeting on the first day of the week. And it says the collection for the saints is directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of the week as each of you is to put something aside and store it up as as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So Paul, again, acknowledging 20 years after the resurrection, the church is still gathering uh, on Sunday for worship. Which means this is not just merely a historical point. This is now turned into a theological point And a biblical teaching. And look, understand the importance of this. This is Maybe for some of you, this isn't, uh, you haven't put this together yet. Before the resurrection, what day is, is, are God's people meeting? together. Saturday, Sabbath. That was the holy day in which they would go to the synagogue and they would worship. That was God's people. The day set apart that was holy uh, was Saturday. After the resurrection, uh, we see this, this shift to Sunday in connection with Jesus's resurrection. In other words, it recalibrates the calendar for God's people after the resurrection. Everything is now changed, and a historical point becomes a theological point. Let me let me actually, I want to say something about uh, hermeneutics here, how we understand Scripture, because I, I I want us to build our own convictions on this point, and I think we need to make sure we understand, uh, make sure we're understanding this rightly. So in in uh, hermeneutics or in the the study of Scripture, there's uh, something that we would call prescriptive and descriptive passages. So certain things that are describing or prescribing something. So uh, there are descriptive portions of Scripture where it would just highlight that something happened, like Jesus resurrected on Sunday. That's describing a historical moment, Jesus resurrected on a Sunday. Um, There are other descriptive moments, like maybe it would mention how Jesus healed a person, let's say on a Wednesday afternoon. But that's never mentioned again. And we wouldn't necessarily from that descriptive moment say every Wednesday afternoon from 12 to 3 is healing hour or healing afternoon. Right? We don't take one time stamp of a Wednesday afternoon healing and then make a a theology out of it. But 
when there's a historical moment like Jesus resurrecting and appearing on Sunday to the gathered people, and then it happens again, and then it happens again, and then it happens again, and we see this repetition, now a description becomes a prescription. Now something that was merely historical becomes something that's doctrinal. And that's what I'm suggesting is happening here with the Lord's Day. Jesus appeared and continues to appear on Sundays. Pentecost happens on Sunday. The book of Revelation highlights the first day of the week as the Lord's Day. And then 20 years later in Corinth, they're still gathering as a church on Sunday for worship. And has not the church held this practice for 2,000 years until today? Um, This is significant. And I would argue this is really why we can't uh, agree with our Messianic Jewish friends. This is why we can't agree with Seventh-day Adventist friends who are adamant that we should worship on Saturday as the Jews did. And they'll say to us, and they'll say to you, if if you haven't heard this already, uh, no, you're just doing that because the church has done that. But I'm suggesting it isn't just the church that's done that. It's the Scriptures that teaches that we worship on Sunday. And so we, we, we can't agree with that council. We can't agree with the council of the government during COVID that was telling us you can't worship on Sunday. You don't have the ability to do this. And we had to say, uh, we, we might refrain as we try to feel out what's going on, but if we want to worship together, we're going to worship together because God, we're going to obey God rather than man. And it's a conviction on the Lord's Day that God has actually spoken to this that gives the church a resolve about Sunday worship. This would also apply to those who um, would make the argument, and many of you have heard people say this to you, uh, well, I just have my own relationship with Jesus. And so they don't show up here ever. They don't show up at any church uh, because they have their own relationship with Jesus and they don't need the church and they don't need to gather on Sundays. And so what I'm suggesting is that this teaching applies to them. And we can use this to say, no, it is not God's will that you just do whatever you want and worship whenever you want. There is a day that God wants to be worshipped, certainly all the time, but always on Sunday morning, or at least on Sunday, should we gather with God's people. Now, all of that to, to press this question and to ask this question. Why was Thomas doubting in the first place? He's a believer. He's a Christian. Why is he doubting? Look at verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. That is the week before, the Sunday before. So the first Sunday Easter church service, who wasn't there? Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. And therefore, he says, I don't believe. And unless I see the wounds, unless I see the body, unless I have physical, I'm not going to believe. His doubts arise because he wasn't at the first church service. That's what the text says. That's explicitly there. The connection is made in Thomas's life. It is interesting that the one disciple who wasn't at the church service the first week where Jesus appeared is the one who is doubting. 
Now, I know people, I, I hear, you know, I've pastored now for 15 years, and I've heard it many, many times. Why do you care so much that I'm here on Sundays? You know, people will say, why does it matter to you so much that I'm here on a Sunday? And there are different reasons that I'm sure pastors have. I won't claim, that, I won't say that every pastor has the same reasons why he cares about this issue. Um, but in our context, kind of a, a Reformed context, and I talk to a lot of pastors that have churches very similar to ours, I think we understand there is a connection between faithfulness to Lord's Day worship and spiritual health. There really is a connection between the two. And guys, it is very, very rare that I find someone who's deeply struggling with their faith and who's here every, every week. It's very rare. There, there is a connection here that many ignore, and I think we're seeing the seed form of it here. We're seeing a pattern that's beginning and something that we need to pay uh, attention to. Now, some of y'all are already thinking, well, I'm here every week and I, I don't feel like much is happening to me. Well, do this. Stop coming for about five weeks, two months, six months. You won't feel like a Christian anymore. I'm out for two weeks and I feel like, I, I don't even know, you know, it throws me off massively. You don't feel it if you're here every week, but when you're gone, you do. And it matters. Now, there's a statement that's been going around uh, on the internet. I don't know if this is really widespread or how many of you have seen it, but it says something like this. The Lord's Day gathering is more important than your personal devotions. The Lord's Day worship is more important than your personal devotion. Now look, I'm not going to get up here and try and make a big argument about this because to me, that's like arguing, do we need air more or water more to survive? You know, it's like, well, you're going to die without both. So you should just get both, right? We need to have time alone with the Lord, but we need spiritually to gather with God's people on the first day of the week. It is a spiritual necessity. Um, and, and let me put a few passages before us to help us see this. Hebrews 11. Um, I won't read this whole portion. I'll be starting verse 23. Listen to the weight of this. Let, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We confess Christ when we come together. For He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Listen. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day that is the day of salvation and judgment drawing near. And then he goes on and listen to what he flows into from talking about not neglecting the corporate gathering and then it flows into apostasy. Verse 26, if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And it goes on with this extremely serious warning that flows out of don't neglect to gather with the people of God and make the good confession of your faith in Christ. That's a, that is a serious passage that, that needs to be considered. There's another one in 1 uh, uh, John chapter 2 that conveys the seriousness of gathering with the people of God. It says, 
They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And I just want to say one thing on that passage because some people misunderstand this. I don't, I don't read that and I don't think anyone should read that to say if someone joins another healthy gospel preaching church that if they go out from us, they've gone out from the Lord. I think this is talking about going out from Christ's church to no church, to no gospel preaching church. Uh, that that is an extremely serious thing and it gives evidence to someone's, the reality of someone's soul. It is no small thing to neglect the Lord's Day gathering. And I'll remind us, uh, church, the word church, ecclesia, means assembly of the saints. Assembly of the holy ones. That's what the word church means in its fundamental sense. Assembly. Gathered people of God. We are the church as we gather more than as we scatter. We're still the church when we scatter. But we're very much the church when we gather. And that's why uh, it says, when two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am among them. There's a real sense in which God shows up in a powerful way in the presence of His people. Um, there's a pattern for those that go out. There's actually, I would, I would say there's two people um, that are kind of examples to us who we don't want to be leaving the fellowship. There's the Judas pattern that he went out from the fellowship, from the assembly, and he never returned. And he's an example, of, unfortunately, of some. Thomas is another type, because Thomas is a Christian. He's a, a genuine believer. But his absence does affect his confidence or his faith and the amount he doubts. Thomas doubted because he wasn't at church. Had he had been in that first church service, he would have seen the resurrected Christ and he would have believed with everyone else. Um, we don't know why Thomas was missing. We don't, we don't get that evidence. And so please don't overhear what I'm arguing here. Um, he may have had legitimate reasons to be out. He may have had good reasons to be out. Uh, but he was out. And therefore, the doubts came. That's all I'm suggesting that we notice here. There are many times church members will be out, and they may be out for good reasons or not good reasons. But it is connected to doubt, and it does affect faith. And that we need to pay attention to. Um, there is a pattern, there is a principle, there is a rule that is fixed within Christianity, I believe, from this moment forward, that a habit of missing Sunday worship will result in increased doubts and weaker faith. All of that to lead to this final question. What is the antidote? What, what is the solution for those who are doubting? And I believe it is a, a threefold answer. Uh, the first I've already stated, start showing up every week. Nail it down that unless I'm sick or dying, I'm here. As for me and my family, we, we will worship the Lord on the first day of the week. And, and I know somebody who's doubting is going to maybe say something like this. Yes, but my doubts are about God. My doubts are about uh, the inerrancy of Scripture. My doubts are about uh, the problem of evil and suffering. How does showing up at church fix that? And I would say that's why I'm giving three, a threefold answer, not a one. 
because just showing up at church doesn't fix every doubt. But when you show up, you must seek to encounter the risen Christ. You, I am not arguing that just showing up and sitting in a seat supernaturally removes all doubts. I'm arguing that showing up and being here and then trying to encounter the risen Christ who is still alive, still raised, begins to affect faith greatly. You know, many people who, uh, who show up at church, and, and I'm not even meaning just this church, but even other churches today, will leave unchanged. But why will they leave unchanged? Well, I, I would suggest it is because they've hardened their heart to the Lord. And they will not receive the Word of God that is being preached and taught in that gathering. They're not seeking the Lord. This is why Hebrews also warns us, do not harden your heart this day as you hear Christ's Word. This leads to a third thing. As you seek to encounter Christ, you must seek to encounter Him through His Word. Look at verse 29. Look what Jesus says to Thomas. Have you believed because you've seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is saying, what you needed, Thomas, was not to see Me. You thought you needed that. But many will believe without seeing Me. And blessed are those disciples, Thomas. And Jesus gives Thomas, I think, a pretty strong exhortation. We, maybe we could call it a gentle rebuke here. Stop doubting. Believe. It's more than an encouragement and it's less than a sharp rebuke. Stop doubting. Believe. Guys, I don't know about you. I need that every week from the Lord. You need that from Christ. You don't need me to try and tell you stories. I'm not a good storyteller anyway, but tell you stories that just make you feel good. You don't just need that. You need exhortations from Christ Himself. You don't just need to hear about Christ. You need Christ Himself to exhort you and to tell your often unbelieving heart, do not disbelieve, but believe. You need the Lord to remind you, you are not just a sinner, you are a saint. You don't belong to the world. You belong to Me. You need, you need Christ's Word through a preacher, through the reading of Scripture, to land on you as God's Word. That's what Paul said to the, Thessal uh, the Thessalonians, right? He commended them and said this, you receive the Word of God not as the Word of men, but, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So yes, people show up and nothing happens, but that's because they don't treat God's Word as God's Word. But if we treat God's Word as God's Word, then God, or the resurrected Christ, is speaking to us every week on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week, like Thomas, and saying, don't disbelieve, but believe. I'm here. I'm alive. I've risen. I've saved you. And, and that affects us. But we need faith. We need faith to take Him at His, at His Word. What does the Scripture say? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. What does Scripture say? How will one believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? 
So Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me, yet have believed. I want to end with just this question. Um, Jesus is standing there to Thomas and saying, look, look. Did Thomas reach out his hand and touch? You ever thought about that? Now, Thomas demanded it. He said, I'm not believing unless I can touch. And then Jesus showed up and he offered it. Reach out, Thomas. I don't believe that Thomas did touch Jesus' wounds. I don't believe he did. There's nothing in the text to suggest that he did. I, I think actually in the text it would suggest otherwise. I think it's, there's many pictures in art, uh, many paintings throughout history that have showed Thomas touching Jesus. But there's many uh, commentators, and I would stand with them, Raymond Brown and R.C. Sproul and others, who have said, although Thomas demanded to touch the wounds, although Jesus showed those wounds, he did not need to touch Jesus once he saw him. Seeing the risen Christ was so overwhelming, he didn't need to touch him. Jesus was before Thomas, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, Or as it says in Revelation, uh, he saw one standing as a lamb slain. Standing, signifying he's risen. Slain, the wounds. This is the one who died. It was enough to see the wounds and realize this is the one who died on the cross. And to see him standing... He conquered death. He's dealt with sin. And I don't think Thomas needed to touch the wounds. And so he said, my Lord and my God. Which I want to come back to next week and just look at that that phrase. But even to that phrase, this this is Jesus for us. He loves Thomas. We don't doubt that. But he rebukes Thomas's even worship. Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Guys, listen, if you if you walk down to this table and take this today because you've believed in Christ as the risen Christ who saved you from your sins, that's a miracle. Most people just say, show me the wounds. Unless I, unless I see Jesus with my own eyes, I'm not believing. If you've believed in Christ, genuinely, truly, it is a miracle of grace. And Jesus says to you, blessed are those who did not need to see, but who have believed. Amen? Church, let's come with confidence. I would ask that as we come to the table today, um, don't take time in your seat to sit there and just think about how bad you sinned this week and all these things. We've confessed our sins to the Lord. I encourage you to come confidently to the table. Display your faith in the resurrected Christ by coming and taking the elements and with great joy proclaiming His death again. Um, For those of you who are new and don't know how we come to the table, we believe this is for those who are baptized and who have put their faith in Christ. Uh, Let's turn ourselves to the Lord and let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank You for... 
rising from the dead and conquering death, the last great enemy. You dealt with sin on the cross and you conquered death in your rising. And Lord, the victory is now ours. And so, Father, we want to proclaim that victory, that kingdom, as we come to the table. Lord, help us to proclaim this until You come. Lord, deepen our confidence in all that You have said and done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.